The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about psychedelics, their history, their effects, some of the new research that's being done, and some of their potential clinical uses. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Brad Burge is the Director of Communications and Marketing for the nonprofit MAPS, which stands for Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. He earned his BA in Communication and Psychology from Stanford University in 2005, and his MA in Communication from the University of California, San Diego in 2009. Brad is also a consultant, writer, and editor for organizations and individuals working in psychedelic and medical marijuana research, drug policy, and psychedelic therapy. Brad, welcome to Science for the People. Uh, thanks, Rochelle. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, so before we really dive into what's going on now, I do want to give people a little bit of context. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the history of psychedelics and research? Uh, in the 50s and 60s, it seems like there was a lot of active research, and then all that seems to have ended in the 70s. What happened? Yeah, um, you know, we talk a lot about, um, or we hear a lot about the restoration of psychedelics to mainstream science and medicine. And it really is a restoration. Um, I was reading a book recently, a really phenomenal book called Acid Test, LSD, Ecstasy, and the Power to Heal by uh, Tom Schroeder, who's a well-known, award-winning journalist, wrote an excellent book, um, addressed a lot of this history of psychedelic research and how MAPS and MAPS founder Rick Doblin, my boss, has been working for about 30 years, 29 years actually, um, to, to get psychedelics back to an accepted place in science and medicine where they're being looked at from a real rational careful scientific angle rather than being ignored uh, from a place of stigma. And in this book, Acid Test, uh, one of the researchers who's been involved in the science for, for, for a long time, since before psychedelics were criminalized, said that in the 1970s, when the war on drugs really started to pick up steam, it was as if psychedelics had been, quote, undiscovered. Uh, there, there was an undiscovery of psychedelics that happened. And that means that there were actually a lot of people, as you alluded to, uh, using psychedelics in therapy, uh, doing initial research, looking at uh, the various uses of MDMA, LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, DMT, um, a whole a whole range of research was being done into psychedelics in the 1950s and 1960s, and even into the 1970s. Um, a lot of that work that was being done was therapeutic use. Uh, so there was a group of psychotherapists um, and other kinds of therapists in California, uh, in other parts of the world, uh, who were using psychedelics in their practice to help people with post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, uh, with anxiety, MDMA, uh, also what's what's now known on the street anyway as ecstasy or molly was being used fairly widely in couples counseling um, so a lot of work was already happening with these drugs, um, including Stanislav Grof, who is a psychiatrist, a Czech psychiatrist, um, has been working in the field since the 1960s, uh, actually administered thousands of LSD sessions to his patients uh, up until the 1970s when the drugs were 
criminalized. So a lot of that information is still available. In fact, it's all still available. Uh, it's available on the MAPS website, uh, and um, you can access that information. But it wasn't double-blind, placebo-controlled research that was happening at that time. So there was a lot of excitement about the potential of psychedelics use in science and therapy for understanding how the mind works, for helping people uncover some of their deeper traumas. Uh, but it wasn't FDA-approved, double-blind, placebo-controlled research like what we're doing now. So with that undiscovery of psychedelics um, and the intervening 40 years or so, maybe 25, 30 years before the research got started again, um, there, there, there really wasn't much advancement in the field. So what we're now seeing is a resurgence of interest from mainstream universities, uh, legitimate researchers, uh, and a few small funders who are starting to get interested in seeing some of these psychedelics return to a place in mainstream science and medicine. So why was research on psychedelics effectively shut down? Well, um, as we all know, psychedelics are illegal now. Uh, they um, were put into Schedule One of the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, which was uh, the sort of keystone of the war on drugs, which made a certain class of drugs illegal. Um, now, what many people misunderstand is that Schedule One drugs, even though they are illegal, um, the research into those Schedule One drugs was never actually illegal and is, is still, in fact, technically legal. So medical research, scientific research, neuroscientific research, looking at its Schedule 1 drugs, including marijuana, LSD, MDMA, that's all technically legal. The problem was that once uh, the drugs were stigmatized once they were listed and became well known as drugs of uh, as drugs of abuse rather than uh, drugs that had potential beneficial uses in certain situations. Funding evaporated overnight, and mainstream government support. Uh, major universities, prominent researchers no longer wanted to touch psychedelics with a 10-foot pole for fear of being labeled uh, hippies or, or, or political radicals or, um, you know, accused of abusing the drugs. So it was really the stigma, uh, the, the, the cultural aspect of the war on drugs that prevented the research from moving forward at that time. Okay, just so everybody has a, an understanding of, of what it is we're talking about here, can you walk us through a little bit about how psychedelics work? I mean, what do they actually do to us biologically? Well, psychedelics are, um, that's a great question. Um, psychedelics are a, a really, um, they're a broad class. And uh, the word psychedelic is not a clinical term, which is to say that the word psychedelic doesn't describe a particular mechanism of action. It doesn't describe what's happening in the brain. So if we're talking about LSD, we're getting very different pharmacological effects, very different psychological effects uh, than we get with MDMA or with psilocybin or with these other compounds. So rather, when we, we, we mention the word psychedelic, when we use the word psychedelic, we're referring to the general psychological effect that they're having. Um, their, their, their potential to uh, help people get to some of the deeper emotions or deeper experiences that they're having. Technically, the word psychedelic, which was coined in the 1950s, means mind manifesting uh, or, or a compound that brings to light the uh, previously hidden contents of the mind. 
So in the context of psychotherapy, that can be very valuable. And that's why uh, we're so excited about psychedelics in therapy. It's because often the challenge of psychotherapy is that patients don't want to talk about the more difficult emotions that they're having, uh, or they're locked into a particular concept of who they are in their relationships or who they are as a person and what they're capable of. But psychedelics um, through all of their various mechanisms, or many of their mechanisms, seem to uh, destabilize that concept of self that people have, um, especially when used in therapeutic settings, and people are predisposed to thinking about them in that way. Um, so in therapy, these uh, capacities of psychedelics to uh, destabilize the ego, to um, get people into a, a deeper touch with their deeper emotions, and in the case of MDMA, to help people feel feel more comfortable uh, and safer talking about their difficult experiences with their therapist. That's why we're um, looking so carefully at the use of psychedelics when combined with, with, with uh, psychotherapy. So when we hear the term Schedule 1 narcotic, we just assume that there's an addictive quality there. Are psychedelics addictive? Uh, from what we've seen, by and large, they're not. Um, in fact, um, the uh, scheduling process, and this is part of the stigma, uh, is that um, there's there's when the drugs were scheduled, uh, there was no evidence, there was no scientific evidence suggesting that they were addictive. They simply got lumped into the same category as heroin, cocaine, um, other drugs um, which are commonly abused. Nicotine is a legal drug which is highly addictive. Alcohol, also a legal drug, which is highly addictive. The scheduling of a drug doesn't necessarily have much to do with its actual addictive potential. Uh, MDMA, uh, LSD, uh, psilocybin, the active component in magic mushrooms, from what we've seen in all the research that's been done um, in human subjects, we haven't seen any sort of long-term addictive potential in those substances. In fact, some of those substances are actually being explored for their capacity to help people get off of other drugs, which do have more addictive potentials. So unfortunately, a lot of the stigma and uh, miseducation, um, some of the bad signs that has come out in the last 30, 40 years of the war on drugs uh, has led us to believe uh, on a cultural level that, 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 that these drugs are addictive when, in fact, um, it's all about how you use them. Okay, so you mentioned possible clinical applications, so I'm just going to keep us going in that direction. There have been a lot of potential clinical applications of psychedelics uh, being discussed. Can you talk about what some of the potential uses may be? Sure. Well, um, I'll, I'll start with what is MAPS's main focus right now, um, and in fact, what uh, prompted the founding of MAPS in 1986, which was the criminalization of MDMA. Uh, which is short for methylene dioxymethamphetamine. Uh, it's uh, um, related to amphetamine um, or speed, but it's a, it, it's a different uh, chemical. It has a different uh, chemical structure on it, which makes it different. Um, amphetamine, straight amphetamine, is highly addictive and very dangerous. Um, MDMA, on the other hand, um, is is different and doesn't have the same addictive potential. Doesn't have the same uh, cardiac and neurological effects that straight amphetamine does. So just to make that that distinction, um, MDMA has now become popular on the street as ecstasy or molly. What's important to note there is that what people buy illegally um, on the criminal black market uh, more often than not doesn't actually contain any MDMA at all. Um, more than 50% of the ecstasy and molly that is analyzed, that's purchased illegally and manufactured illegally, doesn't contain this pure active compound of MDMA. 
And it's that pure active compound that we're looking at in therapy. Um, MDMA, as I mentioned, was first used in couples counseling and post-traumatic stress disorder in the 1970s, up until 1985 when it was criminalized. Uh, right now, our main focus, um, most of our resources, uh, MAPS is a nonprofit. Uh, we get all of our funding from individuals um, or small private family foundations. So far, uh, government funders and uh, large pharmaceutical funders, pharmaceutical companies, for example, have not been interested in funding the research. I think we're getting more and more to that point now that we're kind of starting to overcome the stigma and some initial research is starting to come out. Um, but most of our limited resources as a nonprofit are going to researching MDMA combined with psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, we've had some really exciting results in our first two studies, uh, small pilot studies that we've completed uh, in the last several years. Um, the most exciting one was a paper that was published in 2011 in the Journal of Psychopharmacology that showed that 83%, um, that's 83% of the subjects who um, received just two sessions of MDMA combined with psychotherapy no longer qualified for PTSD after those two sessions. Um, and these weren't people with just light PTSD or had just just gotten it. Um, these were all subjects who had tried medications, they'd tried psychotherapy, um, other forms of psychotherapy for their PTSD, and they hadn't been helped by it. In fact, the people in that study had suffered from PTSD for an average of 19 years. And we saw that after just two sessions of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, they didn't have PTSD anymore. That 83% is... Um, uh, to be compared with 25% in the placebo group. So 25% of those in the study uh, who received psychotherapy but not MDMA, they recovered from PTSD. So the difference there is 83% versus 25%. 83%, by the way, is a, is a tremendous result. Um, that's far beyond the effectiveness of uh, currently approved treatments for PTSD, uh, which are both SSRIs or antidepressants. You mentioned um, placebo, and I gotta ask, how does one test a psychedelic against a placebo? It's actually very hard. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, if you're a trained therapist uh, or you're familiar with the effects of psychedelics, you can usually tell that you've gotten the placebo versus the real thing. And the way that we address that is by doing what's called a dose-response study. So at the low end, or the quote-unquote placebo group, we give them a very, very small dose of MDMA. So a dose that um, is really around 25 or 30 milligrams, as opposed to the full dose, which is around 125 milligrams. So the idea there is that we get some small effect, but um, at least the hypothesis goes, not enough of an effect to actually influence the therapy. And we're seeing really good results on that range. So people who receive very, very low doses, they confuse the therapists uh, enough into thinking that they got the full dose, but they don't have the same uh, massive benefits um, that they sometimes see with the full dose. So uh, this, these results, these numbers are a little bit unbelievable when you hear them. I mean, what has the reaction been both within the academic community and outside it? What has the reaction been to this study? Well, within the scientific community, it's been really excellent. Um, 
you know, just a couple of weeks ago, we learned that that paper that I just mentioned had received a prize from Sage Publications in the Journal of Psychopharmacology for being the highest cited paper in the journal in 2011. So scientists who are doing other kinds of research are drawing on that research substantially. Uh, and using it as a way to move the other research that they're doing forward. Uh, so within the scientific community, it's been really, really strong and outstanding. In fact, we're seeing a wide international field growing fairly quickly of younger researchers and even older researchers who are seeking new projects, uh, getting involved in psychedelic research because the stigma is decreasing um, largely as a result of some of these initial results that we're seeing. Um, that's within the scientific community. Within the um, therapeutic community, uh, I had the opportunity to go to Toronto, Canada, for the American Psychiatric Association conference um, just last or just this year, a few months ago. Um, it was my first time in Canada. Um, it was our first. Um, it was the first time MAPS had ever had a table uh, about psychedelic research in the exhibit hall of a major psychiatric conference like that. Uh, and we were not sure what kind of response we would get. Um, you know, we know that psychedelics have a bad rap and um, we thought we might be ridiculed or people would ask really difficult questions or they'd be really, really skeptical. But in fact, by and large, the therapeutic community, especially the therapeutic community who treats PTSD and is involved with PTSD patients, they're very excited about this research. And more often than not, the question isn't, why are you here? Aren't these drugs dangerous? But the question is, can I prescribe it now? Is is it available now? Can I give this to my patients now? And we have to say, no, it's not legal yet. We're still doing the research, but please talk to your colleagues about it and support us however you can. So within the therapeutic community, there's such a crushing need to find a better approach to dealing with the PTSD epidemic that uh, people are very open and they're very excited. Um, both younger researchers um, and therapists and, and older people. Um, there's even a particular group of older therapists, psychiatrists in their 60s and 70s who were practicing in the field before LSD and MDMA and other psychedelics were criminalized and who saw at that time psychedelics as being the next great thing in psychiatry. Um, but because of the war on drugs and the stigma and the risk of their professional reputation being lost, they've, they've had to move away from those treatments um, and they haven't been able to administer those treatments because they've been illegal. So some of the older therapists, um, older psychiatrists, physicians are, are, are very excited also to see uh, this, this, this work coming back into the mainstream. Um, so that's within professional communities. Uh, the media response has also been phenomenal. Um, the headlines have slowly been shifting to be more and more responsible. And what I mean by that is the headlines used to be sort of, um, is a kind of, kind of exaggerate the risks or, um, uh, you know, equate MDMA and ecstasy. Like I said, ecstasy is very rarely actually pure MDMA, and they would say ecstasy cures trauma, which is not true. Um, but rather, MDMA combined with therapy can help people uh, come to a better relationship with their trauma and eliminate their symptoms. Um, so I think the media, editors, journalists, television, um, documentary filmmakers are starting to catch on a little bit and, and um, starting to help with the public education around these drugs. So this study was done in 2011. Has there been any follow-up with the people who participated in this to see what the staying yeah. power of this was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, psychedelics are often seen as um, something that might maybe produce a change right now in the here and now, um, that um, the changes that we see 
uh, in people following MDMA-assisted psychotherapy um, is going to be very limited or it's not going to last. We actually followed those subjects um, who were primarily female survivors of sexual assault um, and abuse and followed them for an average of 3.8 years. Um, after their second MDMA-assisted psychotherapy session. And on average, those results were sustained. We actually published a follow-up paper in the same journal uh, in um, 2013 um, about those long-term follow-ups that, 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 that acknowledged those, those results. So clearly, it wasn't just a temporary afterglow that people were experiencing, but rather long-term improvements or what... Um, what clinicians call durable remission, um, the, the, the remission of symptoms, um, the reduction of symptoms that lasts a long time following therapy. So a lot of the studies I've read that are coming out about psychedelics all have really small sample sizes, um, often just 10, 20, maybe 30 people. Are there any larger trials being done anywhere or started to get organized? Well, we're starting to get them organized. Um, exactly. Um, the FDA drug development process goes in phases. Um, phase one, phase two, phase three, and then sometimes phase four. Um, phase three are the large studies that you're talking about with hundreds of subjects. Those are the studies that the FDA needs to evaluate in order to decide whether a drug or a device should be approved for marketing in the U.S., the two studies that we've completed, the one in 19 subjects with those um, that 83% result uh, that I mentioned, um, that was in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, our other completed study, um, that was in 12 subjects. Uh, that was in Switzerland. So 19 subjects and 12 subjects, those are very, very small studies. We also have four ongoing uh, additional phase two studies, one also in South Carolina, one in Boulder, Colorado, one in Vancouver, Canada, and then one in Israel. All of those are less than 24 subjects, so 24 subjects or less. In fact, the Israel study is going to be up to 10 subjects, and the Canadian study also about 10 subjects, Boulder about 23. Uh, and our current study, which is just about to end in South Carolina, which is primarily in veterans, that's 24 subjects. So these are small studies. Um, the purpose of these phase two studies is to help us design the best possible phase three studies that we can so we don't waste our investment in those um, so that we can make sure that the results are strongest, we're, we're um, getting statistically significant results, um, our, our, our clinical effect sizes are large enough, we know what dose to use um, to obtain those results. Uh, and then what kinds of people do we need to enroll? You know, for whom does this therapy not work? Because there are groups of people with certain mental conditions or certain histories um, or physiological conditions um, that make them not fit for this kind of therapy. So the phase three studies will be starting next year. And those studies um, are designed um, in a collaborative way. So MAPS and the Food and Drug Administration will actually meet and say, okay, how can we best design these studies so that we can advance this, this treatment um, as, as best as possible, so that we can get the best possible re results and do the best possible science. And like I mentioned, uh, we're a nonprofit, so the phase three studies, those are going to have to be entirely funded um, from donations, as far as we know, unless some major funder comes in maybe listens to science for the people and says, hey, I want to make this happen, um, then um, we're going to have to find that funding 
from somewhere. And we're looking at approximately $22 million as the cost of those phase three studies, um, of which we've already raised about $5 million. So it's eminently possible that we're able to raise the funds for this. And in fact, $22 million is really just chump change if you're looking at what the for-profit pharmaceutical company tends, uh, industry tends to spend on pharmaceutical drug development. They tend to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to develop compounds, um, which they then bring to market. In this case, $22 million for phase three is pretty, um, is, is pretty low. So when we talk about psychedelics being effective or successful, what are we measuring against? Are we measuring against doing nothing? Are we measuring against uh, the existing treatments? What What's our benchmark? Well, for the FDA to approve something, uh, it has to represent a um, what they believe, um, what, 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 what their reviewers judge to be a um, significant improvement over existing treatments. So if somebody comes up with a treatment that works about the same or slightly less, um, then existing treatments, then they won't approve it because um, there's no reason um, to have another drug or device out there. So in this case, it's going to be against, it's going to be measured against existing treatments. And those are what I already mentioned, SSRIs, uh, Prozac and Paxil, which are the two currently approved me- uh, medication-based treatments for PTSD. And if the results are sustained, if we keep seeing the kinds of results that we've um, already seen uh, in our first two completed pilot studies and the preliminary results that we're seeing in these phase two studies, that should be no problem at all. So the studies that you've talked about so far have been primarily about PTSD, but uh, PTSD is not the only place where we're talking about psychedelics having a clinical use. Can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit more about some of the other areas that people are researching actively right now? Uh, Sure. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's, there's quite a bit more. Um, we see MDMA assisted psychotherapy for PTSD research as the wedge that is going to, in a sense, open up, uh, opportunities for additional uses of psychedelics and therapy. Um, and also down the road for spirituality and for creativity and for personal growth for people who are otherwise healthy. Um, we ultimately want to see, um, there being safe uh, context, safe and legal context where people can use psychedelics for um, any beneficial purpose. But first, the science has to be done. And um, the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD research is um, hopefully um, what's going to help open that up, both politically and culturally, as well as financially, since once MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD is approved, then MAPS will be able to legally market uh, and sell MDMA for prescription uh, for use in clinics in inpatient settings, and that's going to give us a an income stream, which we can then use to fund other research. So the other research that we're looking at currently, um, we're also looking at two other conditions using MDMA combined with therapy. One is for MDMA-assisted uh, psychotherapy for people with anxiety associated with life-threatening illness. So people with cancer, leukemia, or other uh, life-threatening illnesses that are either currently active or in remission, um, and then using MDMA-assisted psychotherapy to help people be more comfortable with their life, more comfortable with their il- illness, and ultimately uh, be more comfortable with death. Um, that's a really exciting um, indication from my perspective, um, I believe, because um, unlike PTSD, which a lot of people do suffer from, um, anxiety about death is something that we can all at least identify with. Um, so that's an exciting indication. Um, we have another study uh, also looking at MDMA combined with therapy for social anxiety uh, in adults who are on the autism spectrum. 
Um, that's an ongoing study in LA. We're working with some researchers in collaboration with the Los Angeles Biomedical Research Institute or LA, or LA Biomed. We're also working with some researchers at Stanford who are doing blood analysis in that study. And that's using MDMA to, um, combined with therapy to help autistic adults feel more comfortable in social situations. Um, there, we're not trying to treat or cure autism, but rather to help autistic people develop social skills, um, feel more comfortable communicating their emotions and so on. So that's the MDMA research that we're working on now. Um, we're also, um, or rather, we've also completed a study uh, using LSD in psychotherapy, uh, otherwise known as LSD-assisted psychotherapy, and that's also to treat anxiety in people with life-threatening illness. That study was completed in 2012. Um, that was completed in Switzerland. Very, very small study in uh, just 12 subjects. But we did find in that study uh, uh, clinically significant reductions in anxiety, which means that um, everybody who participated in the study did see some benefit and didn't experience any harm. Although the study was so small with just 12 subjects, the statistical significance wasn't as strong as we would have liked. Um, although if we'd gotten the same effects um, that we got in that study, in a study with more people, it would have been very, very strong effects. Um, this, this statistics is pretty important to understand there. We don't have any other LSD research happening right now because we're so focused on the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. Uh, but we are conducting observational studies, which means we're not actually administering the drug to people, um, but rather following them through treatment of ibogaine-assisted therapy and ayahuasca-assisted therapy. Um, both the ibogaine and the ayahuasca-assisted therapy studies, that's looking at how those drugs can be used in combination with therapy, also in combination with certain kinds of ceremonies or uh, mindfulness-based meditation practices or certain forms of body work to help people reduce their reliance on other drugs. So here we're using ibogaine-assisted therapy and ayahuasca-assisted therapy as addiction interrupters to help people recover from either opiate abuse, uh, alcohol abuse, cocaine abuse, and other um, patterns of dependence. So those are observational studies. The ayahuasca study that um, has recently been published that was conducted in uh, British Columbia in collaboration with a First Nations band. Uh, and um, uh, the ibogaine study, uh, that's actually two studies that were conducted in Mexico and New Zealand. You mentioned um, possible negative side effects of psychedelics and psychedelic-assisted therapy. What what are the potential negative side effects, and how dangerous is this? Um, well, yeah, yes, there, there's side effects to everything, um, especially drugs, and um, they're, um, they, they 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 vary depending on the drug. So um, one thing that can happen, for example, with MDMA is during the course of therapy, people can feel acute anxiety. Um, they, they can feel fear. They can feel um, uh, sort of a deeper connection with difficult memories or difficult experiences that they've had, and that can produce anxiety right there. In the context of therapy, that's not so much a problem, although it is technically a side effect. Um, because often you expect that anxiety will come up as you're processing difficult emotions. Um, also with MDMA, uh, we've also seen slightly elevated heart rates, um, slightly elevated blood pressure with MDMA. Um, that hasn't been a problem in over a thousand administrations of MDMA, um, pure MDMA in clinical uh, trials. 
um, that is, human beings in research receiving pure MDMA haven't um, had any significant negative effects happening as a result of their MDMA use. And of course, that flies in the face of all of the media coverage that we see of um, people overdosing and getting too hot and overheated and dehydrated when using ecstasy or molly, um, what they think is MDMA in uncontrolled, uh, unsafe environments. Um, we've seen that most of the harm and potential danger that's coming from these drugs actually comes from the war on drugs itself and the absence of resources for people to be safe. Um, in the context of therapy, the side effects or the negative effects of these drugs seems to be fairly minimal. Um, we haven't seen any evidence, um, and we have measured it, um, you know, looking at the subjects in all of these studies. We haven't seen any evidence of cognitive damage uh, or um, long-term addiction or anything like that. So compared to currently available pharmaceuticals, uh, the side effects of psychedelics seem to be quite, quite minimal. So uh, there are a lot of places where psychedelics are being talked about um, in a really enthusiastic way. And you mentioned before they're getting a lot of good press. And um, in some cases, the media is reporting more responsibly about them. Um, mm -hmm. But there are places where it seems a little bit like psychedelics are being seen as this kind of cure-all for mental health problems. And I just wonder, does that worry you at all a little bit? Because oftentimes when, when that happens, um, there, there isn't a lot of, of stock there to, there's mm -hmm. not a lot holding that up. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, they're, they're definitely not a cure-all and they're definitely not for everybody. Um, we exclude uh, people with certain mental conditions, um, as I mentioned, certain physiological conditions from our studies. Um, so that's one of the benefits of um, using psychedelics in therapy versus um, just purchasing some drug off the street and using it in an unsafe environment is that the subjects are actually screened. And if you have a, a heart problem or a neurological problem that's going to make the administration of, say, MDMA or LSD um, riskier, then you're not admitted in, into the study. So um, I think part of what we can do to counteract some of these overblown claims about psychedelics being able to cure everything, which they can't, is to um, really pump up the public education aspect and really educate people honestly about, well, you know, which conditions are these best for, who should probably avoid them, um, and so on. The, um, you know, the rhetoric of um, psychedelics being a cure-all or that psychedelics can save the world, you know, that doesn't worry us so much uh, because it's been happening since the 1960s. <laughs> um, it's, 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 it's been a regular thing and there have been, you know, very, very, very vocal proponents of psychedelics for, for 40 or 50 years um, in the U.S. Um, and and Europe. And so um, what we're doing, um, sure, we're making a lot of noise about psychedelics and psychedelics and therapy and their beneficial uses, but we're doing it in a way that acknowledges their risks and in a way that very carefully frames, well, this is for use in therapy um, and there's, there's safer ways and there's less safe ways to use them. I think where a lot of the rhetoric gets out of control and even dangerous is when people think, oh, you know, this drug is going to cure me or I can just pop a pill, you know, pop some MDMA and expect my PTSD to be cured. 
um, which is not at all what we're seeing in the research, which is not at all what we believe to be happening. So I think the public education, the honest education that we're doing um, in the media right now um, is, um, is a major way to reduce some of the harms um, that are potentially associated with people using these drugs outside of clinical contexts. There is also a whole contingent of uh, psychedelics uh, cheerleading that has a tendency to sound a little <laughs> kind of new agey, a little mystical, a little spiritual. Um, and there's definitely a contingent of people who will roll their eyes at that sort of thing and just kind of look the other way. Do you feel like that kind of cheerleader might hurt some of the credibility of what you guys are trying to do or what the research and uh, what the research is showing or what the science is that you guys are trying to work on? Well, I think part of what psychedelic therapy research and psychedelic science shows is that spirituality and healing from mental illness are actually quite intertwined. Um, that um, people often have spiritual experiences in the context of psychedelic therapy. And um, there is an association between the benefits that people get out of psychedelic therapy and the extent to which they see those sessions as mystical or spiritual. So I think, um, you know, talking about spirituality isn't necessarily a bad thing in the context of science. Um, you know, if we... Um, you know, look at it as kind of two sides of a, of a cultural battle. You know, we have science on one side and spirituality on the other. I think psychedelic science can, can help to bridge some of those two divides. Um, you know, there are people, you know, again, who are, who are very enthusiastic in the psychedelic cheerleading, which I think is a great term. <laughs> um, uh, it definitely, uh, it definitely happens. But I think as long as, um, people's experiences are carefully framed and people are, um, careful to say, hey, this is my experience, um, and, um, this might not be somebody else's interpretation of the experience, then I think we can continue communicating what the therapies are doing in an honest way. So you talked about the overwhelmingly positive reaction that you guys have had so far to the research that's being done. But has mm -hmm. there been any significant criticism or pushback both within or the medical and research communities or outside them to some of the latest psychedelics research? Yeah, really interestingly, um, we, we haven't seen um, a lot of that resistance. Um, yeah, um, you know, after, after 40 years of um, counter-propaganda and bad science about psychedelics, you might expect um, that there's going to be a lot of people resisting it or coming out publicly against it. But I think the science is really speaking for itself. Um, some of the, 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 the research that we've shown, um, the, the widespread interest, the support from major research institutions like NYU and Johns Hopkins, um, these, um, you know, it's, it's, it's shifting the conversation to where nobody's really Really coming out vocally against it. Uh, I think that's for a lot of reasons. Um, I think the stigma uh, is is eroding. Um, there's overall declining faith in the war on drugs. We're seeing the the, the, the prisons fill up. Um, we're we're seeing the, the the progressive legalization of medical marijuana and recreational marijuana. Um, so the war on drugs as a solution to our planet's drug problems is, I think, increasingly falling into disregard. And so people are um, less likely to just throw psychedelics um, and other drugs out the window for their history. Also, declining faith in the major pharmaceutical industry. Um, clearly, for-profit pharmaceutical companies are designing drugs um, for their profitability and not necessarily for their ability to heal people. We're learning a lot about the long 
long-term negative side effects of prescription pharmaceuticals, um, antidepressants in particular. And so people are looking, patients and therapists, scientists are looking for alternatives. Um, they're looking for a new way of approaching and um, understanding and treating mental illness and psychedelics and cannabis even can, can um, you know, maybe able to help fill, fill some of that void. Has any of the psychedelics research that's been done so far been tested against some of the existing treatments like antidepressants? There haven't been any direct comparisons yet um, in terms of let's give um, let's give this group psychedelics and then give this group um, you know the the, 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 the conventional one. Um, although we could totally see that happening in the future. For now, the FDA just needs to see uh, that um, psychedelic-assisted therapy, um, whichever happens to be being explored, uh, is both um, safe uh, and effective for a particular condition. But those direct comparisons haven't happened yet. For now, all we can look at is the research that's been done to get those drugs approved and then compare it to the research that we're now seeing. And as I mentioned, the, 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 the comparison is pretty stark, um, where you get very small effects even in large studies um, with SSRIs. And even then, um, one out of three people don't respond to them. Um, and then you compare that to the 83% success rate we saw in that small initial pilot study. Um, it's, it, it's a pretty stark comparison. So attitudes towards psychedelics are changing. Um, but what are the major hurdles for you guys right now when you want to do research into psychedelics? Is it mostly just money at this point? Are there still a lot of regulation hoops? Has there been a lot of pushback politically um, that's causing you guys headaches? Like what, what, what's the big, what's the big hurdle? Well, in order to get the level of funding that we need for phase three, um, again, about $22 million, um, we believe that we need some larger major foundation or government support. Um, so funding is really the major hurdle there. Um, it's no longer very difficult to actually initiate the research in terms of getting approval from the FDA, from the ethics committee, and even from the DEA. Um, it's, it's fairly straightforward now to get these protocols approved. Part of that is because uh, those regulators uh, are no longer so biased, are no longer so afraid uh, of approving the studies, um, and many of them actually want to see what the research says, so they're eager to approve it. Um, and um, part of that is just because um, the researchers, such as MAPS, Hefter Research Institute, um, and other organizations who are working on psychedelic therapy research, we've just gotten better at doing the protocols, gotten better at science, um, and um, knowing what the FDA and the other regulators are looking for. So actually getting the approvals is no longer that difficult, um, at least in terms of psychedelics, for uh, whole plant medical marijuana research, which could make marijuana a federally legal prescription drug covered by insurance that doctors can prescribe, that's been actually much harder than the psychedelic research. Oh, interesting. Um, for some reason, the uh, marijuana is a linchpin of the war on drugs, and it <laughs> is harder to um, break down that barrier than it is to break down um, barriers to psychedelic science. So, uh, it's, it's primarily a funding issue, but funding and politics are always intertwined. Um, and when we go to large funders um, or uh, government officials, military officials who might support MDMA-assisted psychotherapy as a treatment for veterans or active-duty military personnel with PTSD, um, by and large, the individuals support our work, and they want to see people with PTSD have more options. 
Um, but then they say, well, I'm not so sure what my commanding officer or what my boss will say, or I'm not sure what the media will say, or, you know, there seems to be sort of a generalized uh, fear, um, especially if you're a major public figure or you have a lot invested in the status quo or you're a politician or a military official or what have you. Um, there seems to be a, a fear that their reputation might be on the line if they were to support psychedelic research and they see it as a risk that they're taking to get on board. When in fact, how we see it um, and how we try to present this uh, to people is, you know, if, if psychedelic therapy does in fact represent a, a transformation in how we're approaching and treating mental illness, then wouldn't you want to be one of the first ones to get on board? Um, then you can say, look, I'm one of the first ones to support this, um, and we can start seeing it as a reputational opportunity rather than a reputational risk. I, I'm thinking um, especially of uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta on CNN, who just made huge waves last year when he acknowledged that he had been, quote, wrong on medical marijuana. Um, and he sent out a big public letter saying, you know, I've, I've said all these negative things about marijuana, but, you know, now I learned that um, kids with seizures are being cured by using these non-psychoactive forms of marijuana, and there's all these different uses for it. So, you know, I'm sorry, and um, now I really want to do what I can to promote um, medical marijuana research. You know, so now Sanjay Gupta has come ahead as one of the leading proponents of medical marijuana, which is absolutely going to happen nationwide in the U.S. Um, sooner or later, it now appears. So um, that's just one example of how a major public figure, um, especially the kinds of people who could fund our research, um, even just in a single go, $22 million is lunch money for a lot of um, these billionaire philanthropists who um, want to see major cultural and social change happen. Um, for them to see psychedelic therapy and science as an opportunity rather than a risk, I think that will be the major hurdle going forward. You mentioned before that it seems like marijuana is the linchpin that's holding uh, the, the finger in the dam, essentially, <laughs> for some, some <laughs> of this stuff. Why is that? What is it about marijuana that's so polarizing or that people have really kind of grabbed onto to fight about? Because it's, uh, by any stretch, it's really one of the most sort of non-dangerous kind of chill mm. things mm -hmm. to fight about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As far as its psychological effects, it's much less potent than psychedelics. It's a shorter, it's a shorter experience and um, uh, more people use it. And uh, that may be the key uh, is that um, marijuana is widely used um, across the world um, and has been for millennia. Um, and uh, it was really the reefer madness campaigns of the 1930s uh, that got the war on drugs started. Um, it was using marijuana as a way to prosecute and criminalize ethnic minorities and political radicals um, and people that the status quo didn't want to have around. So it was a way to lock people up and to criminalize them and to push them aside outside of um, contemporary society. So marijuana has been part of the war on drugs for 80, 90 years now. Um, and for that reason, it's, it's, it's just so entrenched in our public imagination as the devil weed or the demon weed and, you know, the, the whole reefer madness thing, it still sticks around. Um, so there's that cultural aspect. There's also an economic aspect to it is that so many people use marijuana. It's a really easy thing to use if you want to lock up a certain section of the population in prison. So if you're making money by locking people up in prisons, which people do something on the order of 35 or 
$100,000 a year for people in prison. Like that's how much the private prison, prison industry gets as income for having somebody in prison. So there's an economic incentive to put people in jail. Um, also, there's the, there's the criminal international cartel aspect is that marijuana is the primary funder for most cartels, for most criminal cartels. And without that income from marijuana sales, you, um, you have a much weaker cartel um, organization. Um, so the criminalization, the continued criminalization of marijuana also holds, holds up this entire uh, militarized criminal system that we have at the Mexico-U.S. border and, and elsewhere. So I think there's all these ways that marijuana is kind of holding up the war on drugs. And once, once we see its legalization, um, like we've seen in Colorado, uh, and the positive effects that that can have economically, socially, culturally, uh, medically, um, I think the rest uh, of the war on drugs, the rest of the prohibition attitude is going to slowly or hopefully quickly collapse. Okay, so MAPS recently did a harm reduction program at Burning Man, um, mm. which I want to talk to you about. So can you tell us a little bit about that, what Burning Man is for those who might not know and uh, why <laughs> harm reduction is needed, uh, just what the program was and how it went? To connect it to our previous conversation, you know, the, the, the harm reduction work that we're doing um, is, is part of this uh, unstigmatization of, of, of psychedelics that we're doing and trying to create a... Um, a, a vision, an example of a society in which we don't need to lock people up for using drugs, um, that, that, that we can uh, provide peer-to-peer, uh, -peer, community-based uh, counseling and safety education about drugs so that people don't need to be thrown in jail or hospitalized for um, what they choose to put into their bodies. Um, so harm reduction is just that. It's reducing the harms that are associated with using these drugs. We acknowledge that even though we're exploring psychedelics uh, and marijuana uh, for their therapeutic uses, that people will continue to use them recreationally. They'll continue to use them on their own. They'll continue to go to parties, events, festivals, concerts, uh, and, and, and use the drugs in less safe situations. Or often, because they're illegal, they're not going to actually know what they're taking. They might think it's one thing and it's actually something else. Also because of the lack of education, um, drug abuse resistance education, the D.A.R.E. program taught people to just say no to drugs. It didn't teach people to ask what's in the drugs. It didn't teach people to um, monitor their dosage and not take too much. It just told people to say no. So once you say yes, what do you do? Um, we just don't have the education for that. And so it's our a, harm reduction program... It, it yeah. sounds a little bit like... Um, abstinence education you, you know yeah. just say no and then if you it's, decide to say yes what's next <laughs> it, exactly it reminds me a lot thing. about that exactly the same yeah totally um what do you do what do you do um once you've already gone against what your parents and your teachers have said what do you do and it turns out that people do do this young people do do this and the war on drugs has been happening for 40 years and drug use has only gone up um so the harm reduction program that we have there's both a public education aspect of it where we tell people, you know, make sure you know what's in your drugs. If you don't, you know, be careful of your dosage. Um, and then the on-the-ground community aspect of it is we actually send volunteers to events like Burning Man, um, which is an annual uh, 
um, art um, community event that takes place in the northern Nevada desert. Extremely harsh climate. Um, nothing lives there um, except for human beings once a year. Um, and it's a, it's, it's, it's a harsh desert climate where it's easy to get dehydrated. It can get very, very hot or very, very cold in just a matter of hours. Um, people often choose to use psychedelics and other drugs out there. Unfortunately, alcohol is the biggest problem out there um, due to the issues with dehydration um, and um, violent behavior and so on. But a lot of people also get in either psychological or physical trouble for their use of psychedelics. They've either taken too much uh, or they've gotten separated from their friends or they've um, very often just forgotten to bring a water bottle with them because they're so excited and caught up in whatever they're doing. Um, so we go to these festivals, um, just like we were at Burning Man um, this last year, and provide what's called the Zendo Project. That's our name for our, our harm reduction program. And that's where we set up a space, uh, an actual physical space, um, in, a, in a Zen-style meditation yurt. Um, we had two this year at Burning Man, and we worked closely with the... Um, on-site security and medical personnel there at Burning Man um, to make sure that people knew about the project and that if somebody's friend or you yourself were having a difficult experience, you could find the Zendo project and come in. And once you got there, there's a team of volunteers, um, some of which are actual medical professionals um, with a um, basic level of training in um, compassionate um, sort of compassionate community-based uh, peer-to-peer counseling where you just come in and somebody will sit with you uh, for the duration of the drug experience and provide a calm space to rest that's safe. Um, it's enclosed. Uh, you can get water, um, electrolytes. And just by providing that space, it means that there's somewhere where there are trained volunteers available to take care of people who are having difficult psychedelic experiences so that they don't need to get hospitalized and tranquilized and they don't need to be arrested and thrown in jail. And simply by providing that additional option, we hope to uh, divert some of those people and um, to help reduce some of the harms that are associated with people choosing to use those drugs. So how did it go this year? This year was um, a really monumental year um, in the sense that it's the first year we've worked closely with the actual Burning Man organization um, to get the word out about um, the services. Um, still, uh, in the U.S. and around the world, there's a lot of resistance uh, on the part of event producers um, and organizers uh, to providing harm reduction services because it, in a, in a way, acknowledges that drug use is happening at their events. And that's something that they've, um, that many venues have wanted to push under the table for a long time because they could potentially, or um, the idea is that they could potentially be prosecuted for facilitating drug use. The, the idea that by providing water to people at a concert, you're acknowledging that people are using drugs, um, which is the most backwards, unethical position you can take um, and is just, just totally counter to public health. But unfortunately, because of the war on drugs, that's how it's played out for a long time. So this year, we were able to work closely with the organization, entailing a recognition that the drug use is happening and an honest, sincere desire on the part of the event producers to um, help the people who attend their events stay as safe as possible. Um, so that was really exciting. We uh, helped 161 people. We had 161 guests come in, um, and um, we had 100. And, we had over 170 volunteers. 
who donated over 1,700 hours of their time um, to to just sit with people and set up the space and provide an alternative to law enforcement and arrest. And Burning Man isn't the only place that we go. Um, we also go to smaller festivals and events. Um, we're about done for this festival season, but um, definitely keep an eye out for us next year as we try to expand those services even further. So uh, just before we end, I want to ask you a, a bit more of a hypothetical speculative question. In a world where marijuana use is, is legalized or at least decriminalized, uh, where psychedelics perhaps are decriminalized or legalized, what does harm reduction look like kind of writ large? Because we are not very good at harm reduction for the things that are illegal, like sex, like uh, alcohol. So mm. what what is the potential strategy for that kind of large scale harm reduction, because these things do come with risks. Um, and if they're available at a dispensary, if you can buy them, if or at the very least, you don't have to hide their use. Mm-hmm. Wh- what does that strategy look like when it's not sort of you guys going to festivals, because that's where the high usage mm-hmm. is. And those are the, the groups that are willing to acknowledge that this stuff happens. Oh, the harm re- at that point, uh, when the drugs are legal, and um, there's, there's, there's actual regulatory mechanisms in place to make sure that the drugs are pure, that people know what they're getting, that you have to be a certain age to get them, um, that they're stored and transported in a safe and secure way. Once we get to that point, the public education and harm reduction component of our work becomes much easier. Because then, much like the D.A.R.E. program, we can actually model that. And we can take that message to schools. We can take that to universities. We can put it on billboards. We can have television stations about harm reduction. It's like, hey, you know, this is part of our culture. This is part of our society. Psychedelics are part of our society. Um, given that they are, here's how we can stay as safe as possible. Um, one idea that um, I've heard circulated is um, comparing it to driver's licenses. Um, cars are exceptionally dangerous. Um, people die every minute in cars. We have it's it's, it's one of the the, the 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 greatest killers in the country is car accidents. And yet we give people licenses to drive. Um, we have training courses for people to drive. We revoke licenses if somebody demonstrates that they're an irresponsible driver or they cause damage to themselves or another person or to property. So much like cars, we could actually give people tests and say, hey, here's your, here's your license um, to purchase uh, psychedelics um, or even to purchase alcohol. It would be a great idea to have this kind of education for alcohol as well. It's like, hey, congratulations, you're 21. In order to purchase alcohol, you need an ID um, that says, that you've participated in a training course telling you what the dangers are, um, what the difference is between whiskey and beer and wine and what, how much you can drink and when you shouldn't and so on. So I think that kind of training, that kind of institutionalized um, public training and education becomes even easier once the drugs are legal. We don't have to hide it. We don't need to convince festival producers that it's okay. Um, we don't need to help people feel more comfortable with it because it's already part of our culture. So we're looking forward to that, for sure. Uh, Brad, thanks so much for joining me today. It's a really fascinating, um, hugely exciting area of research uh, that's going on right now. And for anybody who's listening who's interested in learning more about this, where do you suggest they go for either the best sorts of coverage, the the non-exaggerated, but still 
um, really interesting coverage of, of what's going on in psychedelics research. Oh, it's been it's been great speaking with you today, Rochelle. Um, love the program, and it's a real pleasure and an honor to get honest education about science out out to people. It's one of my personal personal pleasures as well as my job. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, for people to um, learn more about what we're doing, check out maps.org, M-A-P-S dot O-R-G. Uh, we're also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Google Plus and YouTube. Um, all over the social media world. Um, that's a great place to just stay tuned to what's happening. We have an email newsletter at maps.org that you can sign up for. And um, I always invite people to write questions to me directly. I love to answer questions at brad at maps.org. Uh, one more quick question. Um, a lot of festivals that get organized are like small independent things. Maybe mm-hmm. if they're in a small town. They've got a few thousand people who show up. Do you guys have any information available for those kinds of smaller festivals about what types of harm reduction um, steps they can take or who they can contact to get more information about having a group like the Zendo Project at their festival or creating a more localized group that can provide provide those types of services? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they can write to us at zendo at maps.org. Thank you so much for joining us, Brad. It's uh, You're great to talk to, and MAPS is really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Michelle. You're great, too. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Brad Burge or the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, we've got the links to get you started in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website, which, of course, is scienceforthepeople.ca. On our website, you can find many more links, including links to all of our past episodes, links to our Facebook page and our Twitter feed, links to subscribe to the show on iTunes or the podcast app of your choosing, and also links to our Patreon page, where you can help support the show and keep us advertising free in exchange for additional extra content. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.